I'm Andrew Faust. I'm here at the Center for Bioregional Living. And today for my Permaculture Perspectives podcast, I wanted to share with you some writing from one of my favorite ethicists and inspirations. It's Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And the collection of essays that I'm going to read you some sections from is entitled Wampeters, Foma, and Granfaloons. And in the background, we're listening to Miles Davis' Directions. So this first passage is from an address to a graduating class at Bennington College in 1970. And we're picking up part of the way through. Which brings us to the arts, whose purpose in common with astrology is to use frauds in order to make human beings seem more wonderful than they really are. Dancers show us human beings who move much more gracefully than human beings really move. Films and books and plays show us people talking much more entertainingly than people really talk. Make paltry human enterprises seem important. Singers and musicians show us human beings making sounds far more lovely than human beings really make. Architects give us temples in such something marvelous is obviously going on. Actually, practically nothing is going on inside and on and on. The arts put man at the center of the universe, whether he belongs there or not. Military science, on the other hand, treats man as garbage, and his children and his cities too. Military science is probably right about the contemptibility of man in the vastness of the universe. Still, I deny that contemptibility, and I beg you to deny it through the creation of appreciation of art. A friend of mine, who is also a critic, decided to do a paper on things I'd written. He reread all my stuff, which took him about two hours and 15 minutes, and he was exasperated when he got through. You know what you do? He said, no. I said, what do I do? And he said, you put bitter coatings on very sweet pills. I would like to do that now, to have the bitterness of my pessimism melt away leaving you with mouthfuls of a sort of vanilla fudge goo. But I find it harder and harder to prepare confections of this sort, particularly since our military scientists have taken to firing at crowds of their own people. Also, I took a trip to Biafra last January, which was a million laughs. And this hideous war in Indochina goes on and on. Still, I will give you what goo I have left. It has been said many times that man's knowledge of himself has been left far behind by his understanding of technology and that we can have peace and plenty, justice, only when man's knowledge of himself catches up. This is not true. Some people hope for great discoveries in the social sciences, social equivalences of F equals MA and E equals MC squared, and so on. 
Others think we have to evolve to become better monkeys with bigger brains. We don't need more information. We don't need bigger brains. All that is required is that we become less selfish than we are. We already have plenty of sound suggestions as to how we are to act if things are to become better on earth. For instance, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. About 700 years ago, Thomas Aquinas had some other recommendations as to what people might do with their lives. And I do not find these made ridiculous by computers and trips to the moon and television sets. He praises the seven spiritual works of mercy, which are these. To teach the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to console the sad, to reprove the sinner, to forgive the offender, to bear with the oppressive and troublesome, and to pray for us all. He also admires the seven corporal works of mercy, which are these, to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to shelter the homeless, to visit the sick and prisoners, to ransom captives and to bury the dead. A great swindle of our time is the assumption that science has made religion obsolete. All science has damaged is the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Jonah and the whale. Everything else holds up pretty well, particularly the lessons about fairness and gentleness. People who find those lessons irrelevant in the 20th century are simply using science as an excuse for greed and harshness. Science has nothing to do with it, friends. Another great swindle is that people your age are supposed to save the world. I was a graduation speaker at a little preparatory school for girls on Cape Cod where I live. I told the girls that they were much too young to save the world and that after they got their diplomas, they should go swimming and sailing and walking and just fool around. I often hear parents say to their idealistic children, All right, you see so much that is wrong with the world, go out and do something about it. We're all for you. Go out and save the world. You are four years older than those prep school girls, but still very young. You too have been swindled. If people have persuaded you that it is now up to you to save the world, it isn't up to you. You don't have the money and the power. You don't have the appearance of grave maturity, even though you may be gravely mature. You don't even know how to handle dynamite. It is up to older people to save the world. You can help them. Do not take the entire world on your shoulders. Do a certain amount of skylarking as befits people your age. Skylarking, incidentally, used to be a minor offense under naval regulations. What a charming crime. It means intolerable lack of seriousness. I would love to have had a dishonorable discharge from the United States Navy for skylarking, not just once, but again and again and again. Many of you will undertake exceedingly serious work this summer, campaigning for humane senators and congressmen, helping the poor and the ignorant and the awfully old. Good, but skylark too. When it really is time for you to save the world, when you have some power and know your way around, when people can't mock you for looking so young, I suggest that you work for a socialist form of government. Free enterprise is much too hard on the old and the sick and the shy and the poor and the stupid. 
and on people nobody likes. They just can't cut the mustard under free enterprise. They lack what certain something that Nelson Rockefeller, for instance, so abundantly has. So let's divide up the wealth more fairly than we have divided it up so far. Let's make sure that everybody has enough to eat and a decent place to live and medical help when he needs it. Let's stop spending money on weapons, which don't work anyway, thank God, and spend money on each other. It isn't moonbeams to talk of modest plenty for all. They have it in Sweden. We can have it here. Dwight David Eisenhower once pointed out that Sweden, with its many utopian programs, had a high rate of alcoholism and suicide and youthful unrest. Even so, I would like to see America try socialism. If we start drinking heavily and killing ourselves, and if our children start acting crazy, we can go back to good old free enterprise again. That's the end of that essay, and I think you can see quite probably why it is that I'm sharing his writing with you. Quite insightful and appropriate for where we are in this day and age to be thinking more inclusively about our options as Americans that go beyond violence as our primary mode of foreign policy. The next piece I'm going to share with you builds on some of these themes. It's an essay entitled, Cheery Lee, Torture and Blubber. When I was a young reader of Robin Hood Tales and The White Company by Arthur Conan Doyle and so on, I came across the verb blubber so often that I looked it up. Bad people in the stories did it when good people punished them hard. It means, of course, to weep noisily and without constraint. No good person in a story ever did that. But it is not easy in real life to make a healthy man blubber, no matter how wicked he may be. So good men have invented appliances which make unconstrained weeping easier. The rack, the boot, the iron maiden, the pettiwinkies, the electric chair, the cross, the thumbscrew. And the thumbscrew is alluded to in the published parts of the secret Pentagon history of the Vietnam War. The late Assistant Secretary of Defense, John McNaughton, speaks of each bombing of the North as one more turn of the screw. Simply, we are torturers, and we once hoped to win in Indochina and anywhere because we had the most expensive torture instruments yet devised. I am reminded of the Spanish Armada, whose ships had torture chambers in their holds. Protestant Englishmen were going to be forced to blubber. The Englishmen refused. Now the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong have refused. Plenty of them have blubbered like crazy as individuals, God knows, when splattered with jellied gasoline, when peppered with white phosphorus, when crammed into tiger cages and sprinkled with lime, but their societies fight on. Agony never made a society quit fighting, as far as I know. A society has to be captured or killed or offered things it values. While Germany was being tortured during the Second World War with justice, may I add, its industrial output and the determination of its people increased. 
Hitler, according to Albert Speer, couldn't even be bothered with marveling at the ruins or comforting the survivors. The Biafrans were tortured simultaneously by Nigerians, Russians, and British. Their children starved to death. The adults were skeletons, but they fought on. One wonders now where our leaders got the idea that mass torture would work to our advantage in Indochina. It never worked anywhere else. They got the idea from childish fiction, I think, and from a childish awe of torture. Children talk about tortures a lot. They often make up what they hope are new ones. I can remember a friend saying to me when I was a child, you want to hear a really neat torture? The other day I heard a child say to another, you want to hear a really cool torture? And then an impossibly complicated engine of pain was described. A cross would be cheaper and work better too. But children believe pain is an effective way to control people, which it isn't, except in a localized short-term sense. They believe that pain can change minds, which it can't. Now, the secret Pentagon history reveals that plenty of high-powered American adults think so, too. Some of them college professors. Shame on them for their ignorance. Torture from the air was the only military scheme open to us. I suppose since the extermination or capture of the North Vietnamese would have started World War III, in which case we would have been tortured from the air. I am sorry we tried torture. I am sorry we tried anything. I hope we never try torture again. It doesn't work. Human beings are stubborn and brave animals everywhere. They can endure amazing amounts of pain if they have to. The North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong have had to. Good show. The American Armada to Indochina has been as narrow-minded and futile as the Spanish Armada to England was, though effectively more cruel. Only 27,000 men were involved in the Spanish fiasco. We are said to have more dope addicts than that in Vietnam. Hail! Victory! Never mind who the American equivalent of Spain's Philip II was. Never mind who lied. Everybody should shut up for a while. Let there be deathly science as our armada. Let there be deathly silence as our armada sails home. All right, and one more from our great ethicist and moralist writer, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. This one is from an essay entitled, In a Manner That Must shame God himself. He's at the Republican Convention, one of the famous ones down in Florida, we'll hear. He's picking up Vonnegut in this passage as a writer for Harper Magazine. I am from Harper's Magazine, I said, and I would like to ask you if you think an atheist could possibly be a good president of the United States. I don't see how, she said. Why not, I said. Well, she said, this whole country is founded on God. Could a Jew be a good president, I asked. I don't know enough about that to say, she replied. 
This was a beautiful white child. I tore my eyes away from her reluctantly. And what did I see? I saw ten American Indians sitting all by themselves on overstuffed furniture in the lobby. Nine were big male Indians. One was an Indian boy. Those Indians seemed to have turned to redwood. They did not talk. They did not swivel their heads around to see who was who. They had a coffee table all to themselves. On it were mimeographed copies of a message they had come great distances to deliver. They were from many tribes. As I would later discover, the message was addressed as follows. Attention, Richard M. Nixon, President USA. The message said this in part. We come today in such a manner that must shame God himself for a country which allows a complete body of people to exist in conditions which are at variance with the ideals of this country, conditions which daily commit injustices and inhumanity, must surely be filled with hate, greed, and unconcern. I did not go directly to the Indians. I chatted first with a reporter friend. He told me a thing that Dr. Daniel Ellsberg who had made the Pentagon Papers public, had said about Dr. Henry Kissinger, the president's strikingly happy advisor on foreign affairs. This was it. Henry has the best deal Faust ever made with Mephistopheles. I thought that was a ravishing remark. Ellsberg was at the convention, incidentally. Nobody seemed to notice him, even though he stood for everything good Republicans considered treacherous and vile. This was because he looked so much like just another security man. I told my friend that I had watched Dr. Kissinger on television. Well, he made gifts of Dutch uncle smiles and autographs to a pair of little girls in white organdy. I was glad that Ellsberg brought up the subject of Mephistopheles because the scene had seemed definitely evil to me. Little girls represent life at its most playful and promising, I said, and anybody in Kissinger's job had a lot to do with random pointless deaths in Vietnam these days, even deaths of little girls in white on our side, so evil came with the job. Under the circumstances, I found it ugly that a man in such a job would give out Dutch uncle smiles and autographs. I now glimpsed Abby Hoffman, the clowning revolutionary, he had been stopped for perhaps the dozenth time that day by security men, who looked just like Dr. Ellsberg. He was a weary clown by now. His press credentials were in order. He was gathering material for a book. Who are you representing, he asked. Field and stream, he said. I had the feeling he wasn't going to be clowning much more. A lot of naturally funny people who want to help losers aren't going to clown anymore. They have caught on that clowning doesn't throw off the timing or slow down cruel social machinery. In fact, it usually serves as a lubricant. Every so often, somebody tells me that it is a delicious fact of history that clowns have often been the most effective revolutionaries. That isn't true. Cruel social machines in the past have needed clowns for lubrication so much that they have often manufactured them consider the Spanish Inquisition. When the Inquisition was about to burn somebody alive in a public square, it shaved that person from head to foot. It tortured the person to the point of babbling idiocy, 
fitted him out with a dunce cap and a lurid paper cloak. His or her face was painted or masked. Hey, presto, a clown! The idea, of course, was to make the victim comical rather than pitiful. Pity is like rust to a cruel social machine. I do not say that America's winners are about to burn America's losers in public squares, although if they did, it would be nothing new. I say that the winners are avid to neglect the losers, which is cruelty too. And neglecting becomes easier if only the victims or people who seem to represent them will look like clowns. If clownish-looking people hadn't come to Miami Beach to raise hell with the convention, there still would have been plenty of clowns in the cartoons and prose and campaign literature floating around. Jack-booted lesbians, mincing male homosexuals, drug-crazed hippies, prostitutes on their way to the unemployment office and Cadillacs, big fat black mamas with 13 children and no papa around, news item from First Monday and official party Republican, Yippie leader Jerry Rubin, a backer of Senator George McGovern, quote, no longer believes that people should kill their parents to demonstrate their dedication to change, and so on. And those Indians in the lobby of the Fontainebleau were moving so little, were saying so little, because their people were dying of neglect, and they knew damn well that even if they sneezed, this would allow some people to dismiss them as clowning redskins. So now they were in danger of becoming comical because of their petrified dignity. These Indians had been harrowingly defeated by white men in greedy, unjust wars. They had been offered death or unconditional surrender, death or life under hideous conditions. Those who had chosen life, which some people think is a holy thing, asked for mercy now. Their average life expectancy was only 46 years. Their babies died with sickening regularity. Their water rights had been stolen. Some of their best men were woozy with tuberculosis and narcotics and booze. Their government-run schools were indifferent to Indian ideas of holiness, and so were the white man's laws of the land. One of the things the Indians had come to beg from President Nixon who never begged anything from anybody, was that their religions be recognized as respectable religions under law. As the law now stands, they told me, their religions are negligible superstitions deserving no respect. I'll say this, their religions couldn't possibly be more chaotic than the Christianity reinvented every day by Dr. D. Elton Trueblood, professor at large. The Indian I talked to most was Ron Petit to Chippewa. He said that he and the others who had come from all over the country to Flamingo Park in Miami Beach where losers and friends of losers had caused a tent city to be built, they moved right out again, disgusted and frightened by the clowns. They went to the Hollywood Indian Reservation, a few miles north of Miami, where Indians' notions of sacredness and dignity were respected. They would not be represented there by some hairy white youth who was willing to set a flag on fire and piss on it as a surrogate for oppressed people everywhere. Ron Petit told a very funny Indian story without cracking a smile. He and the others came into the Fontainebleau with their message to Mr. Nixon and nobody of any importance would take it from them. They were ignored. 
But then they saw people forming into lines. The president's daughters were going to give out autographs, so the Indians got into line too and patiently waited their turn. Indians are legendary for patience. When they arrived at last, before Patricia and Julie, they weren't sure which. They gave her a message for Dad. And her dad would say in his, accept, in his acceptance speech that night, among other things, We covet no one else's territory. We seek no dominion over any other people. We seek peace not only for ourselves, but for all the peoples in the world. This was what he had said on Russian television in May. As a visitor from another planet, I would have to say that this was only kind of true. I think of all the winners at that private party for winners I went to and how they like to live and what good care they take of their financial affairs. They want to go anywhere on the planet and live however they please, buy whatever they please. What could be more human than that? They want to be planetary aristocrats welcomed everywhere. Again, what could be more human than that? What seems to charm them as much as anything about the reapproachment with China is that they may soon be able to travel there again. That charms me too. If we really liked some part of China, we might want to put up a little house there, or a motel, or a Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise. We don't cuff it anybody's territory. We would just like to buy or rent some of it, if we can, and then everybody can get rich. If I were a visitor from another planet radioing home about Earth, I wouldn't call Americans Americans. I would give them a name that told a lot about them immediately. I would call them realtors. I would call the Republicans super realtors. I would call the Democrats inferior realtors. And one thing that fascinated me about the Super Realtors Worship Service on Sunday was that Colonel Frank Borman was on the bill. He looked as tired of space opera as Abby Hoffman was of clowning. He did his bit, which was to read about the creation from Genesis, and that was that. At no point in the Super Realtors Convention was there any Kennedy-style boosterism about the glorious opportunities for Americans in outer space. Since there were plenty of Republicans at the convention who were dumb enough to believe that McGovern was really an enthusiast for acid, amnesty, and abortion, I am free to think that they were dumb enough at one point to hope that nice properties might be had for a song on the moon. They had sent some good Republicans up there to have a look around to cancel some stamps to pray and hit a few golf balls and they knew better now. Not even losers, with all their lazy resourcefulness, could survive on the moon. So, it was time to think hard-headed thoughts about efficient use of the surface of the earth again, and why not make friends again with our old friends the Chinese? It was perhaps unkind of me to associate Dr. Kissinger with evil. That is no casual thing to do in a country as deeply religious as ours is. As the mayor of Birmingham told us about our nation on Sunday, with all our labors, success or failure, now in the years ahead, it will, God willing, always be one nation under God. Dr. Kissinger, after all, has been a healer of terrible wounds between the mightiest nations of all, but the administration he serves is bad news for those nations that are feeble, or what the King James Version of the Bible calls the meek. 
The Super Realtors, with Dr. Kissinger as their representative, have worked out crude agreements with the few other truly terrifying powers of the planet as to what can be done and what must not be done with the real estate of the meek. The Nixon-Kissinger scheme, the winner's scheme, the Neo-Maternikian scheme for lasting world peace is simple. Its basic axiom is to be followed by individuals as well as great nations, by losers and winners alike. We have demonstrated the workability of the axiom in Vietnam, in Bangladesh, in Biafra, in Palestinian refugee camps, in our own ghettos, in our migrant labor camps, on our Indian reservations, in our institutions for the defective and the deformed and the aged. This is it. Ignore agony. I might, with justice and no irony, call Americans healers instead of realtors. I spoke to Art Linkletter at the convention and he is profoundly bent on healing and he is as typical an American as one could find. He had visited South Korea recently, he said, where he had worked years ago to heal children hurt by warfare. They were healthy, happy men and women now, and he had gone to Vietnam too to help the children with fresher wounds. And I must digress at this point to coin an acronym that can serve me now, which is JACFU. J-A-C-F-U, a similar acronym, JANFU, J-A-N-F-U, was coined during the Second World War. Along with SNAFU, it meant Joint Army-Navy Fuck-Up. I would like JACFU to mean Joint American-Communist Fuck-Up. And the children arc link letter, and so many other Americans are mending or want to mend, are surely victims of JACFU. The walking wounded within our own boundaries, our own undeserving poor, are not by any stretch of the imagination victims of jackfu. We creamed them ourselves. Money is tight. We can only afford to heal them a little bit. And even that little bit hurts winners like bloody murder. My close friend Dexter Lean, who is a shoe merchant in Hyannis on Cape Cod, used to read the New York Times every Sunday and then come over to my house and tell me that, on the basis of what he had read in there, things were slowly but surely getting better all the time. I remember talking to him one time, too, about awful automobile drivers we had known. He knew one woman back in the days when all cars had radiator ornaments who never took her eyes off her radiator ornament, he said. And looking at one day's news or a few days' news or a few years' news is a lot like staring at the radiator ornament of a Stutz Bearcat, it seems to me. Which is why so many of us would love to have a visitor from another planet who might have a larger view of our day-to-day -day enterprises who might be able to give us some clue as to what is really going on. He would tell us, I think, that no real winner fears God or believes in a punitive afterlife. He might say that earthlings put such emphasis on truthfulness in order to be believed when they lie. President Nixon, for instance, was free to lie during his acceptance speech at the convention if he wanted to because of his famous love for the truth. And the name of the game was survival. Everything else was hokum. 
He might congratulate us for learning so much about healing the planet and warn us against wounding the planet so horribly during our real estate dealings that it might never heal. The visitor might say, by way of farewell, what Charles Darwin seemed to say to us, and we might write his words in stone, all in capitals, like the words of the mayor of Birmingham. The winners are at war with the losers, and the fix is on. The prospects for peace are awful. So those are some purposefully selected readings that I wanted to share with you from a true visionary, a real, real profound human being who gives us a lot of depth of understanding. You know, Vonnegut was a Dresden, uh, a close friend with many of the literary greats that you're familiar with from the 1970s and truly one of the most important thinkers of our age who combines a lot of the ethics that we'll find in the great speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. And this work, this work of dealing with the lack of empathy in our society, it comes back to some really simple policies that we need to advocate for in the United States, which is that every mother who has a child in this country needs to be financially supported by our culture with our tax dollars. We need to pay mothers a good living quality of life wage to raise their children in a completely unstressful and comfortable environment. And anything other than that is not going to accomplish creating the healthy world that we so desperately need. As a culture, as a society, our work is to become focused on an ethic of care, an ethic of life that we bring into every facet of our culture. And that ethic is based on the recognition that there is more than enough for everyone on this earth. And that until everybody is well, is happy, is content, is whole, until all children can be truly nurtured and not live in fear of health and well-being, we need to have an environment, an atmosphere, a set of conditions that we create for each other and for all of the beings that we share this earth with. Healing the web of life and healing our ways of harvesting our food from the ocean to not be so incredibly extractive, exploitive, and decimating of the health and vibrancy of such an abundant ecosystem. It is a complete travesty what the industrial fishing industry has done 
to the world's oceans. And it is one of the great issues of our time that we must grapple with and heal, address, change, and fix it. Because until we do fix this relationship with the ocean and with the land and with each other, we really don't stand a chance of achieving peace, equality, and a sense of well-being that is innate and visceral for all people around the planet. It's about rebuilding our relationships with how we live, how it is that we provide food for ourselves, how it is that we power our homes and fuel our transportation systems. By changing these, as well as what we package things in, we will turn around a ship of self-annihilation through our dependence on petrochemicals, radioactive, and heavy metal materials. And by not ubiquitously and mindlessly using these incredibly toxic substances to grow food, which is the biggest irony of the application of petrochemicals, to grow something that people are actually going to put inside of their bodies and turn into part of themselves. This is a truly sacred act, the act of eating and the transubstantiation that occurs in our own inner biochemistry as we digest food to use an array of chemicals, so many chemicals in agriculture that it is the single largest non-point source of pollution in the entire country according to the federal government, just to say that one more time for you, the single largest non-point source of pollution, which means whenever it rains, it just ends up contaminating our groundwater and our streams, rivers, and lakes, and ponds. And the thing that does that the most is this thing that we call agriculture, which is completely absurd and self-destructive to be using so many chemicals that we are actually contaminating all of the water around us and then eating things that are grown with that kind of arsenal is uh, quite an astounding ignorance to maintain as a population in terms of understanding what healthy food necessitates, which is no use of chemicals. And the more involved we are personally in growing food, harvesting fish with line caught and from the coast and not having huge trawling nets being pulled way out into the world's oceans, it is very easy to do a better job than what the present system is doing in its destructive manner to feed us something that isn't even worthy of being called food, and then building systems that contaminate the air, water, and soil for many generations to come. We can definitely do it. We can definitely turn the ship around. We can definitely feed ourselves in ways that are beyond organic and way more localized. We can definitely power our homes and our cities with a diversity of renewables that are appropriate, scaled, and localized and we can definitely create a healthy future for ourselves by doing so. Thank you for listening today. I look forward to your thoughts. 
Hope you enjoyed the readings. And I'll be doing that with every podcast from here on out. I'm going to share some selected readings from some of my favorite influences and pieces of literature that I'm diving into and becoming more inspired and informed by. Enjoy your day on earth. Be well.